Hello, Art Crime Pod friends. This is Baker. I don't know when you're listening to this, because these are evergreen episodes, but in our timeline, it's March 2021, and we're about to get a stimulus check. We're very lucky that, in our case, we don't necessarily need the stimulus check, so we would like to donate it to a cause that could use the money. We've chosen skyart.org. Sky, like the sky above you. Art, like the thing we love. SkyArt is unique for being the only free, openly accessible art center in the city of Chicago. They have studio programs, school programs, community programs. We love the work that they're doing. We're glad to donate. Maybe you will too. A little, a lot, or maybe you'll choose another art program that you can donate some money to, if you can. So that's it. I just wanted to give that shout out to skyart.org and all the great work they're doing. Now on to the show. You are listening to the Art Crime Podcast with Mara and Baker. It's the Art Crime Podcast Tenth Show Spectacular. That was fireworks. <laughs> It feels like 10 episodes ago when we started this thing, Mara. That, that sounds accurate. It was just a funny little idea in the kernel of your mind. That was your mind. Well, it's great to see the beautiful audience out there tonight. Thank you for joining us. Our dancers have left the stage, and it's time for us to get down to business. All right. Mara. Mm, Baker. Who are we talking about today? Our artist is Georgia O'Keeffe. Georgia O'Keeffe is one of the most significant artists of the 20th century, renowned for her contribution to modern art. Born on November 15, 1887, the second of seven children, Georgia Tato O'Keeffe grew up on a farm near Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. See, Sun Prairie sounds like Nebraska, but it's not. It's Wisconsin. By the time she graduated from high school in 1905, O'Keefe had determined to make her way as an artist. She studied at the Art Institute of Chicago and the Art Students League in New York, which still exists today, of course, both of those. And um, my instructor, uh, Dominique Medici, teaches at Art Students League of New York. Get out. That's right. Where she learned the techniques of traditional painting. The direction of her artistic practice shifted dramatically four years later when she studied the revolutionary ideas of Arthur Wesley Dow. Dow offered O'Keefe an alternative to established ways of thinking about art. She experimented with abstraction for two years while she taught art in West Texas. Through a series of abstract charcoal drawings, she developed a personal language to better express her feelings and ideas. O'Keefe mailed some of these highly abstract drawings to a friend in New York City. Her friend showed them to Alfred Stieglitz, the art dealer and renowned photographer, who would eventually become O'Keeffe's husband. By the mid-1920s, O'Keeffe was recognized as one of America's most important and successful artists known for her paintings of New York skyscrapers, an essentially American symbol of modernity, as well as her equally radical depictions of flowers. In the summer of 1929, O'Keeffe made the first of many trips to northern New Mexico. The stark landscape and Native American and Hispanic cultures of the region inspired a new direction in O'Keeffe's art. 
For the next two decades, she spent most summers living and working in New Mexico. She made the state her permanent home in 1949, three years after Stieglitz's death. O'Keeffe's New Mexico paintings coincided with a growing interest in regional scenes by American modernists seeking a distinctive view of the nation. The 1950s, O'Keeffe began to travel internationally. She painted and sketched works that evoke the spectacular places she visited, including the mountain peaks of Peru and Japan's Mount Fuji. At the age of 73, she took on a new subject, aerial views of clouds and sky. Suffering from macular degeneration and failing vision, O'Keeffe painted her last unassisted oil painting in 1972. However, O'Keeffe's will to create did not diminish with her eyesight. In 1977, at age 90, she observed, I can see what I want to paint. The thing that makes you want to create is still there. Late in life and almost blind, she enlisted the help of several assistants to enable her to continue creating art. In these works, she drew on favorite motifs from her memory and her vivid imagination. Georgia O'Keeffe died in Santa Fe on March 6, 1986, at the age of 98. I want to talk about Arthur Wesley Dow, her instructor in New York, because looking through his history and seeing where he traveled and the things that he, that he had done in his life... Mm-hmm. It very quickly, it's one of those like uh, the magnets snap together of like, oh my God, if he didn't do that and he hadn't been there, then she wouldn't have taken him as an instructor. And then what would have happened? Yeah. Yeah. So in 1903, following a year of traveling abroad, during which Arthur Wesley Dow visited Tokyo, Kyoto, he was appointed by Teachers College, Columbia University to teach art and serve as the director of fine art department. Uh, in 1914, after she attended summer school, the American painter Georgia O'Keeffe enrolled at Teachers College to study with Dow. She was studying with Dow specifically because he had gotten really into Japanese art before he even ever went to Japan. And he was oh. really interested in woodcuts or lino cuts or whatever. The, there, there's like a yeah. proper term for the Japanese style that I'm not thinking of. Oh, okay. But anyway, he was really interested in that and he started to just kind of insert himself into and in, in, in befriended scholars or other artists who knew a lot about that Japanese style of printmaking and and artistry. So he goes to Japan, he comes back, she is specifically looking for a teacher who has that kind of experience, and boom, he's there, fresh back from Japan, Georgia walks in, and she becomes, or he becomes, arguably from from a teacher standpoint, one of the most influential people in her life. Nice. Eastern influences. He wrote books about how to teach art. He also wrote books on composition, and they were so well-received and respected that there's probably a lot of his, um, his influence in art history or art instruction books today, even. Um, I also found, and this is great, he wrote a book called Composition by Arthur uh, Dow, it's on the Gutenberg site. It's so old. It's free. The Ooh, whole thing. You can I download it. That. You can download it to iBooks. You can download it to Kindle. So I'll put the link in show notes. As always, if you want to see show notes, you can go to artcrime.blog, or you can look at the show notes and the details of the podcast in the app you're listening to, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So isn't that cool? It is cool. Those cool, are some cool. fun tidbits. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I just, I love, again, anytime we do... Uh, these art crimes, and we look back at the history and who were they involved with and what was the timeline. 
and then these things just snap together and I, I just love it it's kind of like when we watch uh uh, what's the show with uh, um, uh, Mr. Gates, the the genius uh, finding your roots? Yes. Yeah, and it's just it's just I don't know. I, I love it. I just love seeing how these tiny little moments or decisions are going left instead of right, mm-hmm. and it makes us who we are. It made Georgia O'Keeffe the artist that she is. I just love learning about those moments. Ah. Uh-huh. So her friend sends. The charcoals to Stieglitz. In 1916. He's all about him. Yes. And he's like, you got to get... Or they start like a, a like, like a pen pal kind of relationship, to, right? But before, the friend gives the work to Stieglitz without Georgia O'Keeffe knowing about it. He does a whole show. He's totally into her work, but he never talks to Georgia about it. He does a show of her work without consulting her, without her permission, without her knowledge. She's in New York and sees it and like goes to like berate him, but then they hit it off. But it's just like nuts to me that he just went, I mean, okay, so it's a hundred years ago. So it's, you just did what you did, but it's, it's so insulting (laughs) that he just put up her work without her permission or her knowledge. But they hit it off despite him being like 127 (laughs) years older than her. I think 24 years technically, but older. I just learned that Stieglitz was kind of, at least, uh, the so he was a photographer, but then he owned the studio. I can't remember the name of, had a number in it. 291 the Gallery. Yeah. Uh, that he was not solely responsible, but he was a big part of getting like Cezanne and other, um, other ma- European, mm-hmm. I mean, they wouldn't be masters yet, but at the time, selling and displaying their work in yeah, his avant-garde. gallery. Yeah, avant-garde. Known avant-garde artists in the U.S. I so, mean, European artists bringing them to the U.S. So that was kind of a big deal. It's a big deal. Like he was very well known. Yeah, his own his own photographs are in the Met. Like he's a known artist, known gallery owner. Yeah. So a little more on Stieglitz and Georgia's Georgia O'Keeffe's relationship. So they Georgie, meet. Georgie O'Keeffe. Georgio O'Keeffe. Georgie O'Keeffe. It's like a Georgie O'Keeffe. It's like a it's like an Irish pub that serves spaghetti. <laughs> Come on down to Georgia O'Keeffe's. Georgia O'Keeffe's. We have Guinness braised uh, brujol or is it tonight. M- meatballs in Guinness because it's Georgia O'Keeffe. So they meet. They're very passionate, and it doesn't really matter to him that he's married, has a daughter. His wife gives him an ultimatum: me or her. And he's like, "Oh, it's her," and just leaves her on the spot. Like, forget this marriage he's had for however long. So he leaves his wife. Leaves his wife. George is like, sorry, wife. This is just what what happens back then. Yeah. And they really did have a very, I'm going to say, passionate and tumultuous relationship. Like, in the course of their relationship, they wrote lots and lots of letters to each other. Like, something over 25,000 pages worth of letters exchanged between them. That's a lot of writing. So whatever it was, because he cheated... I mean, she kind of had some side gigs, like with, you know, a girlfriend, like he cheated. She became very depressed when he hooked up with an even younger woman. Like he shacked up with his art, his um, studio assistant, who was only 20 at the time. And he's like 40 years her senior. And she had children and was married too. But like they get together and it makes Georgia very miserable and depressed, which stops her from painting for a while. So very fraught, but they stayed together until he died. 
and it, it seemed like at some point they didn't see a lot of each other. Like she was a loner, would go off. Yeah, she had to go paint where she painted, and he was like like a creature of New York and stayed. So about the flower vaginas. So this is also at the time where Freud is pretty popular. And so Stieglitz and all of his jabroni friends are like fascinated by Freudian psychology. And so all they can think about, everything they see is a vagina to these guys. And so her work, because she's a woman, these flowers must all mean vaginas. (laughs) The general need to see vaginas in her work seems to just come from a need to also treat her like it's female art. So they're looking for female things in her female art, and it's not just art. And she didn't mind that her art was considered beautiful. And at the time, most modernist male artists would have thought that was an insult. So there's this feeling that beautiful art isn't serious art. So not only was she female, she painted flowers. And so therefore, why take it seriously? And so it's just vaginas. Like, it's really just degrading. And just oversimplified and this this um, need to assume it's not serious because it's coming from a woman. In 1976, she refused to be part of an exhibition celebrating women in art in Los Angeles because she didn't want to be seen through a gendered lens. Uh-huh. Like Louise Bourgeois. Louise Bourgeois. She reacted to a legacy that had been outlined by men, but she knew she was good. Her work sold. Yes. I found an article on The Guardian, uh, The Tate Modernist, How Georgia O'Keeffe Shaped Feminist Style. This was an exhibition at the Tate. Mm-hmm. Uh, aims to exercise the Freudian and, frankly, entry-level readings of her flower paintings. (laughs) Flowers painted by women are vaginas. Everybody knows that. Oh, my God. Uh, Pushed by male critics, and it seems at the behest of her husband, Alfred Stieglitz. Boy, I guess the nice thing about Stieglitz uh, is his talent. I guess, I mean, whatever. I don't know. She cared about him. Obviously, there was something to him. He knew a lot of important people, the who's who. He did promote her work. He made incredible photos and really gorgeous. I mean, the nudes that he would wind up showing and not even like, you know, oh, by the way, I'm showing the nude photos that I took of you. Yeah. Uh, And so then she became like this sexualized thing. But his photos of her, I mean, she looks great. I mean, that's... I don't know if that's appropriate, but she looks great. The photos are great. And because of Alfred, there's a lot of wonderful footage of her throughout her life. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's the bonus. Mm -hmm. Eventually, her style morphed into more of a uniform. Hyper-minimal kimonos, wide lapeled shirts, and cigarette trousers, for the most part, in black or white. Um, If uh, Stieglitz acted like some kind of career Svengali, then at least O'Keefe had creative control over her styling. So, and then I found this photo, and I'll put this in show notes. Isn't that a wonderful photo? Yeah. This is This is uh, Georgia sitting on the edge of her bed. It's from a Life magazine shoot. She is she is up there. She's probably in her 80s at this point. Yes. And she's wearing kind of that kimono-looking mm-hmm. dark and her um, Ferragamo flats, Ooh. which she was known for. So, uh, yeah, dealing with this uh, female artist with... Constantly putting the female in front of the word artist anytime anybody talked about her. As part of my research this week, I wanted to go and look at more of the Georgia O'Keeffe work that I'm not familiar with. Um, I always think of the floating skull, the flowers, the desert, of course. Uh, and I wanted to take a look 
back. And so looking at some of her charcoals from okay. the 1915 period. Ooh, yeah, early. Real, uh, I, I dig them. Yeah. It's like, a, so she was, it's kind of like a response to what was going on in Cubism. And you can see some of that in this work. Uh, there's one second out of my head. She was, even when she was doing this, she's like, I don't even know if I like these. I'm not really sure what I'm doing. But I do, like, there's, you can see Georgia O'Keeffe in this. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, this Cubist influence of the time. But it's very softened by her, by just her being her. Um, so, like, there's, there's, there's more curvature to it. There's just more beauty to it, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one in particular, it's called Red and Orange Streak from 1919. It was an oil on canvas, 27 by 23. Apparently, it's at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I think they own it now. But this is just a gorgeous kind of abstract. I don't know. How would you describe that, more? I mean, it, it almost looks like you can kind of see like one might imagine a, a sunset in the background yeah, or something. Yeah, it's almost like clouds and a setting sun in the far distance and then a very geometric curving arch in the front. Yeah, that almost gives off like the glow of like a like a fourteen carat gold ring or something yeah. like that, or yeah. the one ring to rule them all. So super into those, love that. And then her her New York period, yeah. which this stuff is friggin' amazing. Like you mentioned at the beginning that she was kind of known for some of this stuff, but I I had not seen this at all. Yeah, and Steve was like, "Don't paint buildings like it's not." You yeah, won't yeah, yeah. Be known for it. Somebody said, "Oh, male artists' paintings of New York right. haven't been well received. What makes you a woman think that you can do any better?" <laughs> right. And so we got this one of the Radiator Building at night in New York. It's so cool. Friggin' awesome. Yeah. New York Street with moon. There's like a street lamp in the foreground that's uh, with a halo effect, and mm-hmm. you get a moon up above. Friggin' awesome. The Shelton with sunspots, oh, New yeah. York. That's friggin' awesome. This reminds me. This reflection right here makes me think of. Uh, my old friend Jeff Bellrose, oil painter from the Bay Area. He's Jeff amazing. Jeff Bellrose, he is amazing. This, this, um, this, this made me think of Jeff Bellrose. Definitely. He does some oil paintings. He he loves reflections like that, like, you know, almost like a what angle would that be? Almost a horizon line sun reflection off of a building with glass or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, that one's just called Above. So I love it. The other thing that I didn't know about her is that she went to Hawaii. Yeah. She had an all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii in 1939, so she couldn't turn it down. Who would? No. Why would and you? then, so you have the hibiscus with plumeria. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. This looks like, I mean, this is O'Keefe, the, the file card, like the little encyclopedia entry. This would look like a painting that would go beside her photo. Yes. Recognizable florals. But what about this? love that waterfall number one yes in maui gorgeous yes and that how about this george o'keefe's heliconia crab's claw ginger 1939 love the red paint gorge i'm loving it and then this uh this looks like uh, this is the black lava bridge uh the hana coast wonderful yeah so that's it so again all these in show notes i know super great and the Hawaii exhibit was shown in a botanic garden in New York, yes, which would be a wonderful place to see these paintings, as long as it's not too hot or sweaty. I was remembering my own trip to the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe in 1998. Hmm. I was living in Boulder, Colorado. My mom came out to visit. We took a drive down to New Mexico and just saw a bunch of stuff, went to museums, went to the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum. It had just opened a year earlier, which I had no idea at the time. Oh, I've it- never been there. 
really not, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot there at the time mm-hmm. because it was only I think the I don't know how much they had but it was it was surprisingly small. I think obviously they've gained a lot more uh, pieces over the years and um, parts of her life and so forth. But um, yeah, I didn't really I you know I guess in my mind I just thought oh we're going to Santa Fe there must be a Georgia O'Keeffe Museum, not realizing that it was probably less than a year old at that time. Yeah. Uh, in 2014, she sold Jimson weed, uh, white flower on a Jimson weed, number one. She paid in 1932. It went for $44 million. The wow. estimate was 10 to $15 million. She wow. sold it for $44.4 yeah. $4 million at Sotheby's. Uh, I mean, she was dead. She couldn't enjoy that, but somebody did. Well, she did die wealthy. Her estate was worth $76 million when she died, so she managed her business. Yeah, she sold. She sold. I mean, she probably, I don't know what she inherited from Stieglitz or whatever, but she was selling. She was. She didn't yeah. need his money. Um, as far as being a fan of Georgia before we went into the case and digging deeper into her history than probably either of us have before, mm-hmm. uh, did you feel any differently coming out of it, about the same as there any terms of her work or her life or oh the scope of her life like she, i mean she died at 98 she was committed to art her whole life and i really appreciate the way she traveled to do art like she wanted to paint in different parts of the world and as a naturally like itinerant person myself like i understand that urge to want to go see something else for long periods of time but like to move about and to take a place in really appreciated that and I always appreciate when an artist insists on working till the end because that's just very encouraging to me it's like it's all you can really hope to do is be try to be engaging yourself over a lifetime and learning and expressing yourself in different ways over a lifetime like that's all that's all I really hope for she's so stoic in a lot of the footage or the interviews she's so meticulous and careful with her words she's so comfortable in her own skin and being a loner um i find that i mean obviously it's it's a very attractive thing in a person but at the same time it's kind of intimidating it's like she it's like she's got something figured out that you haven't figured out yet and she just has that in her face yeah yeah she's living how she wants to live my pick of the week is this print arthur wesley dow mentioned earlier her uh, art teacher in new york this is from his ipswich prints series from 1901 published 1902 it's a lily so since we're talking about o'keefe and so many of us think of o'keefe and her flowers i thought i would pick uh, this is a photomechanical relief reproduction on paper at the smithsonian american art museum and uh i just thought it was a nice nod to georgia definitely and I just love the story of how she met her professor and all that stuff mm-hmm. that I was so excited to talk about before. It's time for news, brought to you by this new theme song I found in GarageBand. If you have opinions on the GarageBand theme song I've added to this episode, please keep it to yourself. Thank you. Uh, news item number one. George Clooney calls for the return of the Parthenon marbles to Greece. On March 12, 2021, today's exclusive interview with Greek Daily Newspaper, when asked about the Pantheon marbles, 
British PM Johnson said, so Boris Johnson is saying this in response to George Clooney. Okay. I understand the strong feelings of the Greek people, and indeed Prime Minister Mitsotakis, on the issue. But the UK government has a firm, long-standing position on the sculptures, which is that they were legally acquired by Lord Elgin under the appropriate laws of the time and have been legally owned by the British Museum's trustees since their acquisition. Since day one, it's always been under a lot of debate whether Great Britain should have these pieces at all. So this is not a new argument. And then the, the, the documentation that, that the museum and the government of Great Britain stands on as the basis for the um, legally acquired, air quotes, part of the statement, are not holding up to scrutiny over time. The other part of this story that was news to me was that Lord Elgin took out what was comparable to half of everything in the Parthenon. That's a lot. Yeah. And it was really cool to see that when we were at the British Museum. It was. Yeah. I, it was fascinating. Um, I'd like to see him again. Maybe, maybe in Greece would make more sense. <laughs> yeah. You would think at some point they would be returned. There is a museum there to return them to. I mean, maybe at the time when they were removed, the Parthenon was in a bit of a a messy state. It had been blown up, which, you know, is problematic. So the sculptures have had some time off, a little bit of an indoor vacation, and they've been looked to. And, you know, I think that they'll probably end up going back at some point. Yeah. I mean, it's only been about 220 long-term years loan, or so you know and that's really nothing in the scope of time and history yeah they were looked at elsewhere and you know you know probably provided some flourish and some cleaning right thought maybe it's time they go home right news item number two comes to us from listener joshington ventavius cranium third esquire or as i like to call him crany tray at klepto love story on Twitter reached out, and thank you so much for doing so, to alert us that the Paris Louvre recovers 16th century armor stolen 40 years ago. Oh. I thought you'd be into this. Yeah, cool. And that's what I said to uh, my friend Craney Trey. I said, oh, Mars is really going to be into this. The armor and helmet are thought to have been made in Milan between 1516 and 1580. They were donated to the Louvre in 1922 by the Rothschilds family. A military antiques expert alerted police after being called in to give advice regarding an inheritance in Bordeaux in January, mm. and he became suspicious of the luxury helmet and body armor in the family's collection. Mm. Police later identified the items from a database of stolen artworks as having been taken from the Louvre on the 31st of May, 1983, wow. in circumstances that remain a mystery. Wow. Bordeaux prosecutor Bordeaux, Bordeaux, Bordeaux prosecutors are now investigating how they ended up in the family's estate. So well, that's they in trouble. But here's the crazy thing. There are 100,000 objects on France's database of global stolen artworks. Yeah. 900 added last year alone. <gasps> oh. News item number three. Who done it? The mysterious case of Magashule's missing paintings. Oh, what is this about, you say? This is a South African art crime? Oh. Oh, that's kind of new. That's new yeah. territory yeah, for yeah. us. So who is Magashule? Ace Magashule is a South African politician, an anti-apartheid activist. 
Okay, sounds good. Who is the current Secretary General of the African National Congress? Okay, that sounds pretty good, too. Yeah. He served as the Premier of the Free State, one of South Africa's nine provinces, from 2009 to 2018. Okay, great. Thank you for your service to your country. Uh, Magashuli has been the subject of many journalistic investigations alleging his involvement in corrupt activities. Oh, no. Uh-oh. No, so is this not his painting? It... <laughs> <laughs> you won't believe this is the state's painting they have all kinds of artwork in their public spaces in their offices so magashuli was arrested in november 2020 and awaits trial for a quote scheme designed to defraud and steal monies from the free state department of agriculture the praneef painting was displayed in magashuli's office and went missing in march 2018 after magashuli vacated the office following his promotion to the upper echelons of the anc so this is a painting worth millions it's really beautiful landscape wonderful landscape and i have not seen a lot of landscape paintings of south africa so that alone makes it very kind of eye-popping to me but wait there's more oh there's more first let's step back and learn about pernif whose first name i butchered earlier so born in 1886 died in 1957 usually just referred to as pernif that makes my life easier South African landscape artists generally considered to be one of the best of the old South African masters. I took a little journey through Pernif's paintings and, oh my, I've never seen anything like this. Look at this painting of a baobab tree. I love it. Look at the painting of these trees that I don't know the name of. Those are really neat. Uh, These will be linked to in show notes. These are spectacular paintings. Turns out I'm a big Pernif fan and I didn't even know it. So the painting goes missing two years ago. You'll never believe what happened next. Tell me. Magashuli's former bodyguard gets 15 years in jail for stealing a Praneef painting. Oh. So it turns out uh, when Magashuli was leaving his office to go to his new job, his uh, bodyguard thought, you know what? They're n- nobody's going <laughs> to miss this painting. I'll just, I'll just take this. Uh, the guy who's moving into the office, he probably doesn't even know what's here. So. Right. I'm just going to take that's, this. That's the time. Do to do. In the court on Wednesday, the judge sentenced the bodyguard to an additional 15 years for money laundering for offering the painting to a Chinese businessman as a guarantee for a loan. Come on. Naughty, naughty bodyguard. That's a significant sentence because so often in the thefts we've covered to this point, they're they're minimal. They're like five years, seven years. So 15 years seems quite a bit. He pretended that the painting was donated to him by Magashuli <laughs> and that it legally belonged to him. Oh, dummy. So then he sentenced the bodyguard to 12 months for making false statements to the police Ooh. in which he said Magashuli gave him the painting. And that's all from my news, so let's get into the painting and its theft. Okay. We're going to talk about two paintings, which will sound more like three paintings, but bear with. Two paintings were stolen at about the same time in Santa Fe. One, the subject matter is a red cana, and the other is um, Palo Duro Canyon in Texas. So there's some confusion in the reporting, whether it's the small red cana painted 1919, which is only about eight by six, or just the red kana 1919 which is 13 by 9 i'm going to assume they have some similarities it's a red kana flower 
It's lovely. It's this one, actually. It's a worthy reference point. Oh, look at that. It's really that stunning. Yeah, in. I do love is red paint. Is that an paint. early work? 1919. So, yes, just because um, what her first exhibit in New York was like 1916. So, this is early, early work. Carefully blended colors and voluptuous curves reflect her emerging personal style. Giorgio O'Keeffe made a number of red canna paintings of the canna lily plant, first in watercolor, but primarily abstract paintings of close-up images in oil. O'Keeffe said that she made the paintings to reflect the way she herself saw flowers, although others have called her depictions erotic and compared them to female genitalia. O'Keeffe said they had misconstrued her intentions for doing her flower paintings. Well, I made you take time to look at what I saw and when you took time to really notice my flower, you hung all of your associations with flowers on my flower, and you wrote about my flower as if I think and see what you think and see of the flower, and I don't. So those are her words on whatever it is you want to impose on her flower, because that's not what she saw. Let me tell you what you were thinking when you painted this, dear artist. Yeah, no more mansplaining no, 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 I'll tell my you, flower. I'll tell you. I'll, no, I'll tell you. No, no more mansplaining my flower. Yeah, I would be out of my mind if you, you, Baker, and if you spent most of your time promoting my work and insisting that they were something that they weren't, I couldn't even talk to you. I'd be so mad. And Stieg Stieglitz did this to her. Like, he promoted them as erotic and whatnot. And Wait, how much money would we have to make off a painting for you to be willing to hear me <laughs> tell someone it's a vagina? There's a number. There's there's a number to be willing to call it a vagina. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know what? I might take the money from you, but I'm also weaving. Like, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand you perpetuating some line and pushing it on me and be like, write me the check, and I'm going, I can't stand it. But I made you $100,000. Sayonara. Yeah, no more. So that's painting number one of two or three that were stolen? Is two. the reporting bad on this well the reporting already sounds bad because we can't tell which kana lily right so both are referred to as being stolen but this is the painting that was found got it so this one was recovered shortly after its theft and the second painting in a similar time frame that was stolen was palo duro um, it's called special 21 palo duro painted in 1916 this was painted in a series while georgia o'keefe was teaching at West Texas State Normal College in Canyon, which is near Amarillo, not Amarillo, but Amarillo, Texas, which is where my mother was born. These vibrant paintings reflect her development as an abstract expressionist, influenced by our Arthur Wesley Dow. She made 51 watercolors, but only five oil paintings while living there. Yeah, so I feel like it's especially sad when early paintings like these well, the one just disappears because it's her early work and you can see how her style is forming. And there are only five oil paintings from this period, from this location, which is very well known. Like there's a simplicity to the painting, like, you know, an economy of strokes and colors. But there's a lot of movement in it and a lot of depth. Like it sucks you in. Like where are those bushes all headed? <laughs> and really well composed. Like it, the, the what is it? The Fibonacci... Uh... Oh, yeah. Curve or whatever. Like, it practically looks like that. Yeah, it, yeah, it nearly is. The painting, Special 21, Palo Duro Canyon, was reported missing Tuesday afternoon to the state police, which temporarily closed the museum on Palace Avenue just off the plaza. 
Stuart Ashman, Secretary Designate of the State Department of Cultural Affairs, declined to state how much the O'Keefe was worth, but it was insured through the state's risk management division. So that could mean a lot of things, like maybe they didn't insure it at all, or maybe like the state self-insures, but we don't know. It was public property, Ashman said. It is like the loss of a family member. I have known the painting for 10 years. The whole staff feels violated and hurt. So it was estimated to be worth at least 750000 to a million at the time. The police circulated word among museums and in the art world that the oil on board painting had been stolen. Police felt information on this crime would be quickly circulated worldwide and would deter anyone from attempting to purchase this painting. A reward described as substantial was offered. Officials would not say how the painting was removed from the gallery wall or what security measures were in place to prevent such an action. The painting was being displayed as part of a larger exhibit in a wing that was built in the 80s. So I don't know if there was something about the way the wing was built that made it easier to steal, but this is like the only hint about where it was displayed. Yeah, so not only was the painting one of O'Keeffe's earlier creations, but it was also included in her first one-person show at the Alfred Stieglitz Gallery, 291 in New York City. In 1993, the O'Keeffe Estate gave Special Number 21 to the New Mexico Museum of Art, which owns about 15 O'Keeffe paintings. In the scant reporting that exists about this theft, there was speculation that it was an inside job, even suggesting curators, art students, teachers, and dealers with backgrounds or knowledge or admiration for the artist sometimes can't resist the urge to own a piece of that artist. And someone added, Art theft is not smart theft. The property is easily identifiable. And I just wanted to say that because I thought it was a silly quote that was reported on. We would we couldn't we couldn't sell one t-shirt that said <laughs> art, art theft art isn't theft smart is, theft. Art theft isn't smart theft. Yeah. Art crime podcast. Yeah. No one? Anyone? No. Oh, nobody's bought these t-shirts. That's yeah. weird. And assuming it is an inside job and that it's it's gonna be the staff curators, it's it's pretty insulting. Yeah, that's that. That's pretty weak. It's like, oh, who was around these? Oh, you guys were. So you probably just stole it, right? Like, oh, Jesus. So they didn't really have any leads that they were interested in. Like nobody came forward to try to collect the. No, the no reward. one tried to ransom it or anything like that. No, but former high-ranking museum security guard, and I don't know what they mean by high-ranking general. Right, general <laughs> security guard. A former high-ranking museum security guard named William Crumpton was charged with trying to steal another O'Keeffe painting and cash from the private Georgia O'Keeffe Museum, which is just around the corner from the State Museum. So now we're January 9th, 2004. The man who first reported the theft of a $500,000 Georgia O'Keeffe painting Wednesday night is now himself behind bars, charged with stealing it. Security guard William Crumpton, age 44, was arrested January 2004. He was accused of reporting a robbery in progress at the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in an attempt to cover up the theft of a very small, very valuable O'Keeffe painting, as well as $14,000 in museum cash. Police said the money and the 1919 painting Red Kana were recovered. So we don't really know what like his plan was or how he went about doing this. It's, it's This is a little painting, though. It's like no bigger than a foot. Either way, if it's the 8-inch one or the 13-inch one, it's it's a small painting. Maneuverable. He had a two-step plan 
Step one, steal the painting. Step two, be the one to call the police to say the painting was stolen. (laughs) Yes. And investigators were also trying to determine whether there had been links between the thefts at the George O'Keefe Museum and a theft at the Santa Fe County Treasurer's Office, which is across the street, where $8,000 in cash had disappeared from the treasurer's safe on December 13th. So all these thefts are occurring at the same time within blocks of each other. Crumpton appeared before a Santa Fe judge and was formally charged with four felonies. And his wife said if he did do this, it was because he felt overwhelmed with debt. He and his wife had filed for bankruptcy in 1999. So, so what was the verdict? How, how long was he in jail? So now we are up to October 2004. William Crumpton, 45, pleaded guilty on Tuesday to seven counts of theft involving cash and paintings by George O'Keefe from the O'Keefe Museum in downtown Santa Fe, where he was security guard, and from a nearby government office. So he um, confesses to both the treasury theft and the Red Connor theft. Mr. Crumpton was also suspected in the disappearance of the um, Special 21 Palo Duro, which had been stolen the month earlier, valued at a million dollars. At his sentencing, he denies having taken the one million dollar O'Keefe Palo Duro, Special 21 O'Keefe painting. He's like, I didn't take that. He did at some point, while being questioned, confess to it, but it seems like he was coerced into a confession and that at his sentencing, he says, I didn't steal that one. William Crumpton had been sentenced to a year in jail in January 2005 in the O'Keefe case and a theft from the county treasurer's office. But state district judge Vigil then gave him credit for the year he'd been in jail and under house arrest while the cases were pending. Vigil had sentenced him to five years probation and 100 hours of community service and ordered him to repay more than $8,000 looted from the treasurer's office in 2003. God, that seems pretty light. It's like nothing. Especially compared to the bodyguard we talked about earlier. Right. So here we are, April 28th, 2006. William Crumpton, the man convicted of hiding the Red Kana painting and stealing cash, died shortly after being released from jail where he had been held on probation violation. So he was 47 and he died less than two days after he was released from the Santa Fe County Jail where he'd been held for a month. Whoa. Crumpton's son alleged his father died because jail officials denied him blood thinning medicine he needed. He said his father told visiting family members several times that the jail doctors weren't providing his prescribed medicine. He's dead and it's your fault, the son said. Jail officials will look into the allegation. Whoa. So he pro- so he got a blood clot and had a stroke probably? Yeah, so he's sentenced in 2004. He's only sentenced to a year, but then he must have to go back in for probation violation where he doesn't receive his drugs and supposedly, allegedly, and then dies. I'm trying to find more information about William Crumpton's death by what I assume is a blood clot and probably stroke if they weren't giving him his blood thinners. Mm -hmm. And it's noticeably absent yeah. I, I just see the article that you quoted where it sounds like he's dead and it's your fault. Yeah. But not a lot of follow-up or any follow-up no. that I can find. It was really a benign burglary. If I think probably he's he's guilty of the Red Connor one. Like, he confessed to that, and he was certainly... Act of desperation. The cash, you know, was on him. Like, yeah, he's bankrupt. What didn't have, like, a long history of... 
of of theft or other criminal activity. Not that we know about. It just seems like a desperate opportunist. Yes. Who immediately fessed up. Yes. Told them everything they need to know. He didn't damage the painting. It was returned. Spent some time in jail. Wasn't given his appropriate medications. Left and died within two days. Right. That's that is a and if awful tragic story. And if the police didn't have any leads in the other case, and he was certainly easy to pin it to, they already had him. He, yeah, so he how worked hard at were both they even museums, looking? Right. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. So wow. the painting could be anywhere. Everyone is a massive loser in this whole case. That's very sad. Yeah. And I wonder if there were other reasons the police didn't take it very seriously. Like, this is a very important painting. Like, is it... I'm going to say it. Is it misogyny? Like, oh, it's just a woman's painting, so we're not looking very hard. Like, it's not a Rembrandt. Like, it didn't... It's too small. It didn't set off alarms around the world. Right. I'm glad you chose these two thefts. First of all, because I love I love talking about George O'Keefe. But second of all, because there's there's a... Like, to your point, there's a shocking lack of information about this. Yes. For whatever reason. And it's just a... It's just a real tragedy. Two paintings stolen... The treasury is robbed around the same time. Yep, all within blocks of each other. A non-criminal, desperate man takes an opportunity, has no real plan of what to do, gets caught quickly, right. yep. and that's right. it. Yeah, and we there's just nothing. Assume... I'm not finding anything. It's There's nothing here. No. Maybe this is one we can solve. <laughs> I would love to go to Santa Fe. I know we would love to go to Santa Fe. Yeah. I know we want to go to New Mexico. Yeah. Let's rent a house now. Let's find the goddamn Palo Doro. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. All right, this is the one. You heard it here. We probably need a art crime van that we can live in. Oh, okay. Sure, sure. So sure, maybe sure. we should start a Patreon <laughs> in order to buy one of those $150,000 art crime vans. Crime van, yeah. I would never do that to our listeners, ever. I won't make crappy t-shirts with dumb sayings like, Art theft is not smart theft. Is that what they said? Yes. <laughs> I know. There's two things you can count on from this podcast. <laughs> we will not ask you to fund a van so we can solve crimes. Although we would obviously love that. I'm a big fan of the mystery machine, though. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, big, 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 big Scooby-Doo It is your dream. Fan. I probably shouldn't have brought it up because yeah. now you're glowing. I can I know, see I'm you like, right now. I have real Scooby-Doo visions of grandeur right now. Like, big time. Wow. Wow, that was a real bummer. Right? It's weird. Yeah. It's like, how is there so little to and talk that's about it. here? That's the art crime. I know. Because like we've, up to this point, the cases have been pretty well investigated. There's a, Even if the police don't you know, share their full police investigation with the public, I understand. Like, There's just so little information here to sink your teeth into. And considering how important these pieces are, especially to American art, is it... Is it they didn't get that much attention because it's American art by a woman? If it had been a Rembrandt, you know, would this have been in the public eye a little longer? Where's the Charlie Hill of the American West to step up and find this damn thing? Yes. I guess it's up to us. Once again, we're going to hop in my Honda Element, load up the dogs, 
go to New Mexico, and we're going to turn the screws on you, you son of a bitch. Whoever you are out there with the Paso Palo, Palo Duro, <laughs> what is it called? Yeah, between the hours of about 10 and 3 when I'm most functional, <laughs> we are definitely going to investigate. We are coming after. If you're listening to this right now, that Palo Duro is going back to a museum where it belongs. <laughs> because it was given by the artist right. to a museum. Yeah, not because it was stolen no. from an ancient civilization but because it, it wasn't stolen literally it was belongs in a museum literally it was a bequest so it's okay it's okay it's going to a museum all right well that's a wrap on episode 10 thanks so much mara thank you baker until next time <laughs>